Hello, and welcome to episode 51 of Screaming Through the Ages. I'm your host, Trey Whetstone, and on this episode, I'm going to be tackling the VHS franchise, running down my favorite picks from the 31 Days of Halloween that I just went through, and also I'll have a little bit of a Child's Play anniversary segment. But let's not waste any time, let's go ahead and get into this. So first up, I want to get in and talk to these, and this isn't going to be a full in-depth discussion of the franchise or anything like that, but I have recently watched or rewatched most of these, and I just wanted to talk about them a little bit. So in this franchise, we have the original VHS, which was released in 2012, and this franchise focuses around found footage segments that are found on VHS tape. And that's what most of the franchise focuses on. There are some that are done with, you know, like Skype or some kind of video chat system like that. And some of these that maybe don't feel like they're necessarily done on videotape. I don't know about viral and what those were done with because it seems like they were kind of breaking the tradition there with these videos playing to people's phones. But I just want to go down through and run through what's in the franchise. And then I'm going to rank my favorite segments uh, from the movies and just like a top five or whatever. And then just give a rating of how I feel overall on each one of the movies. So VHS was the first. It was released in 2012. And in this one, we have... So our segments are the Tape 56, or the Frame Narrative Wraparound, by Adam Wingard. Now that is awful. I think that is a terrible wraparound, and is one of the reasons that I just have never fallen in love. This and the first segment here were things that really turned me off this series as a whole. Yeah, we have um, the wraparound there. Then we have Amateur Night, which was directed by David Bruckner. We have Second Honeymoon, directed by Ty West. We have Tuesday the 17th, directed by Glenn McQuaid. We have The Sick Thing That Happened to Emily When She Was Younger, by Joe Swanberg. And 103198 by Radio Silence. Now, if I was to rank these and talk about each one within the movie, and I'm not going to talk about the wraparounds because I don't think any of them are particularly good, but if I'm looking at my least favorite on this, it's probably Amateur Night, and I think Amateur Night is done well. It's just not... I don't like it at all. This is my third time watching Amateur Night. I turned the entire movie off after the first time of watching Amateur Night in that wraparound segment. So I don't like that one at all. That's my that's my least favorite on this, regardless of the quality of it. And I, you know, I like most of Bruckner's stuff, but that's not for me. Uh, then I would say Tuesday the 17th, which is uh, not as well made, but I liked it a little better than Amateur Night. Then I would say Second Honeymoon, which is a cool little story. I just wanted maybe a little bit more from it. And I know that's hard with these anthologies, but... I think Second Honeymoon is pretty good. And then at number two, I would put 103198 by Radio Silence. 
My only issue with 1031.98 is it kind of just ends so abruptly. It's like it, it, it builds so well and it's a, it's a cool little short, but that's one of the stronger ones I think in the entire series. And then one that I think is even stronger than that is the sick thing that happened to Emily when she was younger. And that segment for me is one of the best in the entire series. And I, I really like that one. That's by um, Joe Swanberg, who I'm not very familiar with the other films that he's done but I would rank that as my favorite. That's the one that goes kind of in the Skype call, and I'm not going to talk about plot or anything with any of these specific segments because they're so short. You just need to probably experience them for yourself, but I'm sure most people out there have seen VHS. Now, that's my ranking of these segments. If I was to give this an overall ranking, I'd probably give it around a... Six, uh, 6.5 out of 10. And I think it's pretty solid, but I think it's just, you know, second, uh, a lot of these left me wanting more. And I don't think that's true about the sick thing that happened to Emily when she was younger. But I think that's definitely true about Tuesday the 17th and second honeymoon. I didn't want any more of amateur night, but uh, we got it. <laughs> and yeah, so I I think that one's a solid 6.5. I did enjoy it. Then we have VHS 2. And VHS 2 came out in 2013. So VHS 1 was October of 2012, and this one was June of 2013. So it was like just a seven or eight month turnaround. And with this one, as far as the, you know, the segments we have... Uh, Tape 49, which is the frame narrative by Simon Barrett, who I've liked some of his other works. You have Phase 1 Clinical Trials by Adam Wingard, and starring Adam Wingard. You've got A Ride in the Park by Eduardo Sanchez and Greg Hale. You've got Safe Haven by Timo Tajanto and Gareth Evans. You have Slumber Party Alien Abduction by Jason Eisner, and yeah, and I think that's it, actually. So, as far as a ranking for these ones, I would say A Ride in the Park is by far the worst thing on this entire movie. It's pretty bad. The wraparound is better than A Ride in the Park. That one is just there for the sake of having, like, what, gore and violence, and there's not really any kind of story to it. It's just, it's all over the place. It's chaotic, and I don't like it at all. Next, I would say, and I'm torn on this one, I'm going to have to say uh, Slumber Party Alien Abduction. And my problem with that one, and my problem with a lot of these VHS segments and movies are, why are all these people such abrasive a-holes and d-bags? And and I get that. That's all that the beginning of this little segment is. And I I can't stand it. I don't like the... (laughs) the debaggery going on and that's why it gets a lot of points knocked off now once it gets into where it's going i think it's pretty cool and i do like where it goes but there's just there's too many terrible characters and this was that time period the late aughts the the early 2010s there was a lot of abrasiveness a lot of stuff that really turns me off with dialogue and 
writing and things like that. But And then we have, I would say my number two is Phase 1 Clinical Trials by Wingard. I think he is a little, you know, abrasive in this movie. He is a little <laughs> hard to stomach at points, but I like the overall story. And uh, this one for me was another one that I thought ended pretty abruptly, but I thought it was an interesting idea. It's definitely been done before, but, I, you know, I still liked it. I still liked it. I thought it was a solid cast and well done. And then my favorite by far was Safe Haven. And I love uh, Timo DeJanto and Gareth Evans. I like about almost everything that those two have done. So this one gets very high marks for me, and I can talk about that maybe a little bit later. But I would say Safe Haven is, it's probably the best. I will say it is the best of any of these in this series. It gets a little, it takes a little bit to fully get into it and get going, but man, the way it ends and that wild ride it takes you on, it's incredible and it's easily the best one. And I think it's things like that and the clinical trial one that raise this a little bit. Safe Haven, I would give Safe Haven alone like a nine. I really like that. But the rest of these, they kind of drag it down in the middle a little bit. I'm struggling to give, I think the wraparound was done better this time, but it's nothing inventive or creative. So even though we have that top notch segment, I don't know. I'm still comfortable giving this one like a 7.5 because it has one of the worst segments in the entire franchise on it. But it also has the best, and the other two are pretty serviceable, I think. Uh, I'm going to give it a 7.5 just for safe haven, even though I am I should really be giving it a 7. I, <laughs> I'll cave in on that one. But Okay, next up was VHS Viral, which was done uh, October of 2014. And this is the uh, much maligned entry in this franchise. People don't like this one at all. We have the Vicious Circles frame narrative, which was definitely more ambitious. And I think it's very hit or miss. I mean, it's it's got its high points for sure. And that is directed by Marcel Sarmiento. And as far as the segments, you have Dante the Great from Greg Bishop. You have Parallel Monsters by Nacho Vigalondo. You've got Bone Storm by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And then that's really it. So you've just got those three on this one. This is, I think, maybe the shortest in the franchise. But let's let's talk about these a little bit. Uh, the like I said, the frame story is hit or miss. The Dante the Great segment. Uh, no, I want to. Okay, so if we're ranking these, Bone Storm is the worst. It takes forever to get going, and would have me wanting to turn it off in the beginning. There are some cool elements to it there's some cool parts to it for sure you know we get some cool creatures or uh, villains in this one later on but the beginning of it is so awful and the dialogue is terrible and that's a it's just awful bone storm is terrible uh, you know i'm not the biggest benson and moorhead fan but definitely not their finest work uh, then i would say you have dante the great which is interesting but I needed more from it. It didn't really deliver what I wanted from it. They spent so much time on the wraparound in this one that I feel like all these segments kind of 
didn't have, I mean, Bone Storm got plenty of time for what it was, but they didn't really have time to grow and take shape. And the best one in this one by far is Parallel Monsters. And this was this was a crazy sci-fi one. I like that one a lot. I like Parallel Monsters a lot. But it's unfortunately not enough to save this. Uh, that one is both, you know, shocking and crazy and a really well done short. So definitely check out that one if you're only going to check out, you know, this film has a reputation. If you're only going to check out one, I would say definitely check out that. But uh, the wraparound story, there's just too much into that. It brings it down too much. And the other two are, you know, one is underdeveloped and the other one is just not that good. I would give VHS Viral overall probably about a five, I would say. Most of those points are just for Parallel Monsters. Maybe I'll bump it up to a 5.5. I'm feeling generous. I'll go ahead and say 5.5 for VHS Viral. And that's just because I really like Parallel Monsters and I kind of like Dante the Great. Okay, and then up next we have a spinoff called Siren, which was a long-form amateur night version. And you know, if I didn't want the uh, the original, I definitely don't want anything to do with Siren. Uh, that was directed by Greg Bishop. I haven't seen that one. It doesn't have very good... Uh, it's not very well received, but that came out in December of 2016. And then we had a break. So that was two years between Viral and the spinoff. And then we had a five-year break until finally in... October of 2021, VHS-94 reared its head. Now, I'm going to spoil this right now. This is the this is my favorite of this entire franchise. I don't really like the wraparound. Uh, Holy Hell, directed by Jennifer Reeder. It's fine. You know what? It's not bad. It's probably the best wraparound of these ones. But it's nothing really to write home about. And you have Storm Drain uh, by Chloe Akuno which is, you know, set in the town that I live in right now, Westerville, Ohio. So thrown off to to hear that when it was going through it. But uh, then we have The Empty Wake, which was directed by Simon Barrett. So you've got Barrett once again. Barrett is kind of a series regular. You have The Subject by Timo Tejanto. And finally, you have Terror by Ryan Prowse. Now, if I'm going to rank these, I would say, here's the thing is even the worst of these is really entertaining to me. And I'd say the bottom one is Terror. And, you know, that one's that one takes forever to get going. I, I do like the ending. I think it's pretty crazy in the end and it's pretty dumb, but it's still not bad. And then next, I would say The Empty Wake by Barrett. I That has such a great setup. That is an incredible setup. I didn't think it necessarily stuck the landing, but the setup is so good. And then we have The Subject, which is better than I remembered. I rewatched this recently, and the subject is really good. It takes a little bit to get going as well, but not too bad. And then my favorite is Storm Drain, which, of course, gave us Ratma and Hail Ratma forever and always. But Akuno did an excellent job and then would return the next year to put out Watcher. So that would be my my overall take on VHS 94. I would give this, you know, I'm 
I think I'm wavering here. I'm thinking of giving this one an eight. And, you know, I think when I rated it the other day, I gave it a a 7.5, but I'm thinking an eight because I really, really like this one. No, no, no. I'm, I'm going to stick with a 7.5. I don't think any of them hit the high highs of like safe haven. So I'm going to go ahead and keep it at a 7.5 for now, but I really like VHS 94 and it is my favorite of the series. Then we had a very big letdown the next year in uh, 2022 with VHS 99. And I just find this one, it it opened terribly. As far as we're looking at the segments, you have Shredding by Maggie Levin. Uh, Suicide Bid by Johannes Roberts. You've got Ozzy's Dungeon by Flying Lotus. Uh, the Gawkers by Tyler McIntyre. And To Helen Back by Vanessa and Joseph Winter, who would go on to do uh, Deadstream. So this is just bad. This one's bad. Um, I don't think it has... I'm trying to remember if it has a wraparound, but I don't think it does. So if I'm ranking these, Shredding is the worst. It's awful. (laughs) It's terrible. I don't want to talk about it. Uh, Suicide Bid. Eh. I'll say Ozzy's Dungeon because... Ozzy's Dungeon had a really good, it had a really good um, idea. It just didn't execute whatsoever, any at all. Uh, Really bad. Uh, Then I'll say Suicide Bid, which isn't much better, but it's it's a short. And then um, I would say The Gawkers is next, which I, again, were having the same type of terrible humor and writing in The Gawkers for the most part of it. But I didn't mind the way it ended. It was okay. And then we had To Helen Back, which was interesting. It was easily the best one here. But I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites is the problem. I think it was good. I don't think it was one of the better ones. So, I mean, this is my least... If you took my favorites from each one of these, this would be the lowest on all of them. I'm I'm struggling here whether to give this. I think I need to give it a five. I'm going to come in below viral because uh, Nacho's short on that one was so much better than anything else in this one. And Helen Back is fine. Gawkers is fine. But yeah, there's a... This one's pretty bad. And the bad segments are really bad. Yeah, I I don't like 99 at all. It was such a big disappointment last year. I thought it had all the makings of something cool and just didn't stick the landing at all. No no execution. So then we had another spinoff, Kids vs. Aliens, which I wanted to get in. And this is actually the guy who directed the original. So that's very different from the uh, Siren Amateur Night spinoff. But I haven't got a chance to get to this one yet. I want to before the end of the year. So I'll check that out at some point, but I haven't yet. And then finally, on October 6th of this year, we had VHS 85 drop. And I went in with almost no expectations after 99. And I'm looking here, we have the uh, the total copy frame narrative by Bruckner is interesting. I think it's it's pretty decent. It's not too bad. Then you have No Wake by Mike Pete Nelson. You've got God of Death by Gigi Saul Guerrero. You've got 
TKNOGD by Natasha Kermani. You've got Ambrosia by Mike P. Nelson. And then you have Dream Kill by Scott Derrickson. So if I'm rating these, by far the worst is TKNOGD by Kermani. And I'm very sad about that because I did like Lucky that she did from, I think, last year. But that was awful. That was by far the worst. It's terrible. Uh, it's not even worth watching, honestly. And then I would say God of Death by Guerrero. The problem with God of Death is it's a slog to get to where we actually get to any cool stuff. And then once we get there, it doesn't necessarily go far enough. So I think the ending to that one is cool, but it's just not enough to save it overall. And I'm going to have to I'm going to have to say Dream Kill here. By Derrickson, I think it had potential, but it didn't necessarily live up to it in the end. I think it struggled and kind of faltered there. And I think next I would have Ambrosia. I don't know. I might swap Dream Kill and Ambrosia. I think I think I'll swap Dream Kill and Ambrosia. So if we're running it down, and sorry about that, but it would be TKNOGD, God of Death, Ambrosia, Dream Kill. Uh, that would be the rankings. Ambrosia is pretty... I think it's good. It's just not a lot happens, and you need something else to... And there's an outside factor that uh, causes me to enjoy it more than I probably do, but my number one is... And I want to be... I'm being cryptic for a reason, but my number one is No Wake. And that one's really good. I like the characters. I like the build-up to it. And I love where it goes at the end. This has a very good ending. So I enjoyed that one. But overall, the problem with this one is I don't think there's... There is a standout for sure. But I don't think it matches up to something like the original VHS even. As far as like... I think it's got that consistent quality for the most part. I don't know. I feel like I'm just saying that now because I don't think it does. It's got some really bad ones too, but... I'll give it a six. If you're playing along at home, my rankings would be very close together. Our, our uh, VHS 99 and VHS viral. And then you jump up to VHS 85. You go to the original VHS, VHS 2, and then VHS 94, which I really love. So if I'm going to rank these segments, my top five segments throughout the entire franchise... I would say number five is 103198 from VHS 1. Uh, number four is No Wake from VHS 85. Number three is Storm Drain from VHS 94. Number two is The Sick Thing That Happened to Emily When She Was Younger. And number one would be... Uh, and that one is from the original VHS. And then number one would be Safe Haven from VHS 2. So overall, I did enjoy it. I would probably continue watching these. I mean, even VHS 85 that didn't necessarily wow me, there was it was still worth watching. There were still a lot of good segments in there. But as a whole, I think the franchise is decent. There's been some misses for sure. I do want to get back to kids versus aliens and see if that's better than the short but yeah i did enjoy it so uh, let me know what some of your favorites in this franchise are if you've watched them all 
what are some of your favorite segments, anything you uh, you have to get off your chest about VHS, I'm here to listen to. But All right, so I'm going to transition off of this VHS franchise review and start talking about, in general, my 31 days of Halloween from this year. Okay, so now I want to get into a topic here. Just really quickly, I want to go over this. So I had put out a survey. I don't know. I think that was about a month ago or more. I was asking people to go through it and give their responses as to what they like about the show, what they want to see about the show, and try to use that going forward. And really, in the long-term future, for sure, I think next year the show's going to get a lot different. When I actually, you know, there are things that I feel like I've had to get in. You know, I implemented this change mid-year. Some of the other changes I didn't start until even later than that. And I felt like there was a certain amount of content I had to get in, these certain things that I wanted to get in before the end of the year. And I had to get those cleaned up. And then next year, I don't know if I can start fresh necessarily, but maybe in February I can. And can really explore different things and going about different types of content and not feel like everything's got to be so rushed and shoehorned in. But... I think there's some room here for the short term as well for these changes to take place. But I'm going to quickly go down through the list here and kind of give the results of this and what my thinking or logic was behind the questions. And this will take like 10 minutes. I'm not going to do this very long, but stay tuned if you want to hear more about what you can look forward to on the show. And if you have problems with these results and you, you know, you didn't take the survey and you thought, Oh, well, I think this, please let me know your feedback. Absolutely. But I won't keep you too long here. So the first question is, do you like the length of the recent episodes? And I really just wanted to gauge what people's feelings were on these longer episodes I've been doing. So, you know, I've combined horror into one episode a month and basically still had the same length that I was getting on most months, you know, two different shows. And I've done a non-horror one separate from that. And I just wanted to know, uh, do you like the recent links? It was unanimous. Everyone responded back. And by the way, I was pretty impressed by the amount of responses I got. I would say I had probably about, you know, 20% of the hardcore audience that listened to the show. And when I say hardcore, that's people that listen every uh, week when I put those numbers up or that listen to every episode, I would say I probably got about 20% of them to respond. And that was, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And if you are, you don't listen to the show and you responded, I really appreciate that as well, because I'll take any feedback on what people want to hear and what would get them into the show. But see, so yeah, that was unanimous. Yes. People do like the new longer episodes. Question two is what parts of the show do you enjoy most? And not surprisingly, the franchise reviews took this one with 65% of the vote. And you can vote on multiple portions of this. But And then number two, I was shocked that many review segments were on there because I didn't know how people felt about that. So that was 55% of people voted for that. So those were the two. I wouldn't say runaway, but those were the leaders. Everything else was kind of in the same territory. And surprisingly, New release reviews was bottom of the list. So I'm going to take this and definitely keep doing what I'm doing with certain aspects and maybe draw back on some other ones. Then we had, what topic would you most like to see covered in future episodes? 
and I put out four choices here for horror episodes, and these are all the horror-related questions first. So my options here were the history of early Universal Monsters or Universal Horror Movies, the history of Blumhouse, Jason Blum, uh, William Castle filmography or biography, and the last one was the second wave of horror remakes from the late 90s and the 2000s, and that one won by a landslide. I mean, it was 60% of the vote that one took, and this was one where you could only answer once. So this is an example of I'm taking that, and as soon as I get through Hitchcock, I'm going to start pivoting to the second wave of horror remakes. So uh, you are being heard on that feedback. Then we had what franchises would you like to see covered on the show? And this is surprising, and it's changed over time, but The Purge took number one on this, and then Paranormal Activity and It's Alive were tied, uh, just one vote each behind The Purge. And I was shocked that It's Alive got so many votes, and I was shocked that The Purge won this one, but after Amityville, The Purge will be the next horror franchise I will be covering. All right, and then we had a question asking if you listened to the new Screaming Chronicles episodes, which are the mostly non-horror episodes. And the breakdown is about what I would expect. 75% do, 25% don't. Based on numbers, that makes that makes sense. That about makes sense. So that was mostly to gauge, you know, are people, are the people that are filling out this survey listening to that string of episodes? So there's fewer responses for this next wave just because, you know, if you don't listen to that, you probably weren't providing feedback of what you like. But if so, what segments do you listen to? And far and away, non-horror movie history and reviews was the top of the list, followed by TV reviews and then video game history and reviews. And, you know, as expected, anime reviews, uh, a very small margin. And I know that. And listen, Guys, the anime reviews, that's there because I want to do it. It's something I have fun doing, and I enjoy it. I know there's certain people in the audience that do enjoy it, but I I do realize that's a small chunk, and that's why I put the timestamps up there. But yeah, the um, non-horror movies, so just movies in general, uh, took about 70-some percent of the vote. So the movie on what would you like to see more of in the future this one was a pretty big landslide as well, and that is the non-horror film year in review. So right now we do the episodes. I do them with Nathan, and I had Raul on for the 1985 one. And I go through a year, and we give our top films, go over the box office, whatever else. People want to see those for just movies in general, and I want to do those. I don't know how to go about those. If I need to have a guest on for those, if I do this by myself, if you have an opinion on that, let me know. But I would like to do those in the future. So those will be something that will be more long-term future, but I am working on something with that. And then two more things that are you know, pretty much up to or have to do with films as well. And that makes sense because I started this as a horror movie podcast and now transitioning into other stuff, my main audience is going to be interested in films. Uh, that would be non-horror film history, so the same thing I do for you know horror movie history and stuff like that. And then book clubs, where we you know watch a movie or uh, do something, follow along with that, a movie or a show or something. You watch it, and we report back, and I take feedback from the community and things like that. So 
that's definitely something I can easily implement. I will see what people think about it and how to get your feedback. But if you want, I mean, I can start doing that probably. I don't know when, maybe December or something, have something out there where I'm like, hey, let's watch this movie and give me your feedback somewhere. If that's something the audience is wanting to do, I would absolutely love to do that. So I'll toy around with that. But if you have any additional feedback on any of this, it is appreciated. I guess I didn't uh, ask for more detail on this. but And then the video game stuff would be the next uh, step down from that. And I didn't ask about the anime stuff because of what I <laughs> what I said earlier. But if there is anything else anime you want to see for the handful of people that listen to that, let me know. All right, next was what franchises listed would you like to see covered on the show? Because just like I'm doing franchise reviews on the horror stuff, I want to do it on movies in general. And I had a lot of options out there. And I got a couple of write-ins. So Planet of the Apes, shockingly for me, I didn't know this was so beloved or so... Maybe it's because people don't talk about it. But that was the number one vote getter with 66.7% of the vote. A third of or two thirds of people that took this survey voted for Planet of the Apes. And then right below it was Predator, any Predator franchise. So Planet of the Apes is definitely the one I'm going to get to next at some point next year. I'll start that. And I'll do Predator as well in there. The Terminator was the next one down. And then Jurassic Park, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, John Wick, The Mummy with Brian Frazier. And then I had two write-ins, and one was Aliens, and I do want to do Aliens. I feel like the problem with Aliens is I just rewatched some of those films maybe a year or so ago, and I don't want it to be, I want it to be more fresh when I go back in and watch them. So Aliens is one that I really want to do, but it might be a little, a little while before I cover that. And then James Bond was another write-in, and I'm sorry guys, I could do a franchise review of James Bond. But here's the problem is I don't I've never had any affinity for James Bond um, in the films that I've watched. So I think I'd be doing it a disservice. I don't know if that's a joke answer or a real answer. I'm assuming it's a real earnest answer. If it's a joke answer, uh, it's funny because there's like what 50 of those or something. I, <laughs> there's not 50. But James Bond is, I don't think, in the in the cards for right now. But I do appreciate the feedback. Then we had some write ins. And I know who these people are without even looking, but or at least some of them. But I do want to kind of go over some um, suggestions here. Uh, More TV, mid-budget movies have been replaced by TV series for at very least dramas and comedies. I am working. I've got a plan. I even want to do, if I can fit it in, I've got a plan once we get out of October here and maybe even starting with October with some of the horror series that have come out. I'm going to hit TV pretty hard. So rest assured, there will be some TV stuff coming up on the show for sure. Um, I do want to get into it. I want to get back into it. It is time consuming, especially with everything else I'm watching. You know, I'm watching, I'm trying to binge these anime seasons as well and get those things out. So I am watching a lot right now. Again, this is something that's going to be easier to do next year when I have, when I'm not feeling like I'm cramming this stuff in because I made this decision in October and now I've got to cram in all these TV shows that I want to get a you know a top 10 list for 2023 or whatever but I do want to incorporate more TV so that is on the way maybe alien abductions or UFO stuff possible religious cult horror I do love religious cult horror that'll probably come in at some point aliens UFO abductions so I'm going to take this feedback immediately and I think you'll see you will see 
feedback, both of these points of feedback addressed, um, at least initially, in the next Screaming Chronicles episode. So stay tuned for that. But I'm taking those concerns to heart immediately and trying to incorporate those in. Uh, physical media reviews with recommendations on upcoming releases. This is interesting. I used to do the show with Dave and Nathan on Phantom Video where we did this kind of thing. And that's been dormant for a while. And I've been trying to do my screaming off the shelves where I'm taking stuff on my shelves and recommending them. But maybe I do with that screaming off the shelves segment, you know, pick one or two physical media releases I'm excited for or that I just picked up or something like that and give recommendations for them. So I'll definitely try to incorporate that going forward. And then Asian horror. Yeah, I'm all about Asian horror. You know, I talked to Asian horror broadly in the folk horror regards on the last folk horror part. But, you know, when I was doing that, I also decided, well, I just need to do a separate episode or series of episodes on Indonesian horror. And I'm definitely going to do a separate individual episode on J-horror at some point. So that's coming. And I mean, I think people listening probably know how much I love Asian horror. So that doesn't fall on deaf ears. And then so that's for things that I wanted to I asked if people wanted to hear me cover. And then as far as the last question with the feedback, I did get some good feedback here. And it's all kind of pat on the back, self-congratulatory. So I appreciate that. I'm not going to go deep into that. But one here said, you know, great show um, and great playtime. Not too long where you lose interest. And I appreciate that because I'm trying to ride that line. I mean, I am mostly talking by myself on here. So I don't want it to seem like I'm just talking at you guys for hours and hours and hours and that not be enjoyable. So please let me know if that changes. But it seems like y'all are digging it so far. Okay, that is going to be it for this little brief interlude. So I'm going to go ahead and move it over to my 31 days of horror challenge that I just specifically talked about earlier. I just forgot to introduce this in the intro. But I'm going to go ahead and go into that in detail you know, some of my recommendations from that time period. But uh, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks to everyone for doing this survey. And hey, if you want to go out there, the link's still in there in the, I think it's in the last episode's show notes, or it's in the show notes somewhere. Maybe I'll link it in the show notes here. I'd still appreciate your feedback on that, but I appreciate everyone that filled that out. And yeah, thank you so much. Okay, I'm back, and in this segment, I'm going to be going over my watches, and not all of them, but some of my favorites from this year's 31 Days of Halloween. But first, uh, Dave Dr. Shock Becker from, you know, Land of the Creeps and the old horror movie podcast days, and Jay of the Dead's new horror movies, reached out about donating a film that I talked about during my folk horror series, um, that is Witch Hammer. Dave has a Blu-ray of that that he is willing to give away to someone for the show. Now, it is a PAL Blu-ray, but the listing on Amazon for the one that Dave has claims that it is Region ABC, so it should play in any Region A player, no problem. So don't worry about that. But if you would like to win a copy of Witch Hammer, 
all I'm going to ask you to do is go over when this episode drops and on whatever social media platform, or you can also email me if you don't have social media or anything like that. But what I want you to do is just tell me one or some of your favorite watches from this past October. And uh, yeah, I will randomly pick a winner and we will get that Witch Hammer Blu-ray out to you. Okay, so now I want to move on to the films that I watched and really just highlighting some of the ones that I really enjoyed. Now, I got to 64 films in this string of watches. Now, you can discount probably seven of those that I started that last week of September ramping up into October. But uh, even if you took those out, I still got to 57 films this October. And I'm going to stay away from rewatches and anything that I was watching for podcast. So a lot of the folk horror stuff or anything I was watching for horror movie podcast wouldn't be included here. So first up, I want to highlight a few new releases that I had watched. I did watch The Fall of the House of Usher, and I'm sure I'll be talking about that on horror movie podcast at some point. But uh, some of the other ones, and I'll just go through these really quick, these 2023 releases that I did really enjoy were a totally killer, uh, Sister Death, When Evil Lurks, Slaughterhouse, The Passenger, and Suitable Flesh. And I also enjoyed Hell House LLC Origins, The Carmichael Manor. So there were a lot of good 2023 watches that I got in here. I won't talk about any of them too in depth. Sister Death is the sequel to, or prequel really, to uh, Veronica from Netflix. And that is by director Paco Plaza again. It was pretty good. It told the story, the origin story of, you know, Sister Death or uh, Narcissa, I believe is her name. And that was pretty good. It was a pretty good story, I would say. You've got Slother House, which is just a lot of fun. It's a dumb, goofy comedy, but is a ton of fun. Totally Killer I did talk about on Horror Movie Podcast, so I won't get into that too much. The Passenger is a really tense thriller, I would say. I think it's a pretty unique film as well. I don't think we see a lot of things like that, so I enjoyed that one. I did like Suitable Flesh by Joe Lynch. Um, I will say it's a step down from something like Mayhem for me, which I think is excellent. And I did like Crampton and Heather Graham in this. But honestly, this one just fell a little bit flat. Don't let the Lovecraftian uh, setup fool you. This is much more Brian De Palma than it is Lovecraft. I enjoyed it. I just had found some flaws with it. So it was uh, going in. That was a you know hugely anticipated one for me. And it fell just a little short, but still a very enjoyable film. When Evil Lurks was excellent. Uh, I think I'm maybe a little bit lower than most, and my reasoning behind and I wouldn't say much lower. Uh, you know, I would give that thing like an 8.5. But I think the main thing for me with that movie is it's just so bleak and depressing, and there's not, you know, a lot of times with horror movies, at least early on, maybe you have nice character moments, maybe you have some kind of anything. There's nothing in this film but darkness and bleakness. There's no... There's no hope, there's no brightness, there's no warmth at all. It's devoid of any of that through the entire film. And uh, I still 
highly enjoyed it. Thought it was a very intense film. Thought it was very, it is very shocking, but that's definitely my favorite of the 2023 releases that I watched this month. And honestly, it's right up there. It's probably only behind uh, Witch Hammer, which I saw for a show, and uh, The Fall of the House of Usher, as far as my October watches in general. So for October, I like to pretty much just watch new stuff, meaning films that are new to me. You know, I did set out this year to do some mini themes you know, sets of like three or four movies in the same categories or watch films from certain years. And I did do a lot of that. Problem is, is you're going to get a lot of middle of the road stuff. And um, this year was no exception. But I do want to highlight a lot of these films that I did watch. And again, I'm not going to be talking about any of the folk horror, or any of the other stuff like that. That I did for podcast, but oh, I missed one on the new releases. Birth Rebirth was a very very interesting film. I liked that one a lot. Um, pretty cool horror film. That's definitely worth checking out. And I think that one's coming to Shudder this month. So stay tuned for that one. And I did watch, and I know this is a turnoff for some viewers, but I had a romantic horror session. And I waited to watch that one until later because I knew I would probably at least enjoy those. But I want to talk about the difference between something like Life After Beth and something like Burying the X. So Burying the X is a Joe Dante film. And for me, it doesn't feel like a Joe Dante film. And while there are definitely comedic moments throughout Burying the X, I feel like there's also a lot of... I feel like it's also a very serious film when it comes down to it. And, you know, there's a lot of that... I don't know, you can see where... It's definitely mixed with its serious tone and its comedic tone. Like there's shifts in those moments like any good Joe Dante film is. I just don't think this felt very much like one of his films. It was, you know, it was crass. The dialogue wasn't great at all. And it just didn't feel like Joe Dante. So where I ultimately fell down on the wrong end of that one and ended up giving it like a, you know, like a six or something. One like Life After Beth which was actually an A24 film, that one I felt I was a lot higher on it. And I think it has that comedic cast. I mean, you've got Aubrey Plaza, um, you've got John C. Riley, you've got Molly Shannon. You know, these are comedic actors. When you look at Burying the X, and I know Dane DeHaan isn't really, but you've got Alexandra Daddario, Ashley Green, you do have Dick Miller in there again because it's a Joe Dante film. Anton Yelkin, you really don't have any comedic actors. Or I think Life After Beth, you do. So what you get is a more comedic tone in Life After Beth, but I think a much more enjoyable film. And I'll stand by that. I would, I would, you know, give Life After Beth like a seven, as opposed to Burying the X. I think it's a much, a much better scripted film. It's got better dialogue. It uh, it's just much more enjoyable to watch. So I really did like Life After Bath. I know that one gets crapped on sometimes, but I thought that was a really fun film. And then the other romantic film that I watched, and I keep forgetting this was 2023 as well, uh, is Attachment. And I thought Attachment was pretty good, too. I would put it in the same range as Life After Bath. But I had a really good time with that day of 
you know, romantic horror. You know, say what you will about me, but uh, that's <laughs> I did want to highlight that I did have a a good time with that. Okay, next up. Oh gosh, I keep forgetting about 2023 films. I don't know what I did here, or if these weren't showing up. But Appendage is a 2023 film that I really enjoyed, and this one is pretty crazy. It goes pretty much off the rails. Um, this one's on Hulu, so it's easy to check out. It is about coping with something, and something that's not necessarily in the traditional sense, but I really liked Appendage. I think if you're into weirder stuff, that one's definitely worth checking out. Uh, skipping around my podcast watches, Rush Week was a slasher that I actually really enjoyed. I mean, it's not a well-made film, but hey, I I actually liked it a great deal, and I'm going to be picking up the Blu-ray. Again, there's nothing too special about it, but I thought it was a fun slasher. Oh, here's yet another 2023 film I missed, and this one's a hard one to talk about. Final Cut, which is the French remake of One Cut of the Dead. And this is pretty much beat for beat. There's not a lot new in that territory, but I thought it was, here's where I'm having the problem, is it's probably one of the best 2023 horror movies I've seen, but it's not... Is it really like a new 2023 horror movie? And that's where I think the debate's going to be at the end of the year is it is one of the best things I've seen, but I've seen it before. So it is really solid. If you are like me and haven't seen One Cut of the Dead since it came out, it might be worth checking this out. You're still going to remember a lot of the stuff I did as it was playing out. It's almost like you're watching the original and it's kind of blending together at some point. But it's a really well done film. Another slasher that I really enjoyed was Valentine, and Nathan Bartlebaugh had been suggesting this one to me, and for some reason, this one, you know, it really hit the spot. When I was looking for a slasher, I thought it was fun. Again, the dialogue's not terrible, but you've got Denise Richards, and that gets it points ultimately from the beginning. It's got a decent cast in it. And I just had a lot of fun with it. It's uh, the ending's kind of um, dumb, I think, but uh, it was still fun. And the last one I want to mention was The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. And this is a classic monster film that I hadn't watched and one that had inspired several kaiju films. And I really did enjoy The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. I thought it was a really fun watch, and I definitely would watch that one again. I would recommend it to any kaiju fans who haven't seen that type of film or haven't seen this film in particular but so yeah i had a good time i think um you know i didn't mention a ton of films here just because so many of the ones that i really enjoyed fell under my folk horror watches or fell under you know ones that i were, had rewatched or something like that but i watched a ton of good 2023 horror films and some smattering of other good stuff here and there mm -hmm. I had a lot of duds at some point I had to switch up my trajectory because I was having some misses. Oh, one other I want to mention real quick, Dead End Drive-In, which is an Australian film. I think that one was almost there for me. I really liked it, but I wanted something a little more. I think that poster is very uh, misleading on that one, but Dead End Drive-In is very enjoyable. I liked that one as well. But that's going to do it for this segment. Remember to go over on this post once the episode drops and let me know what your favorite watch from October was. And I will enter you into a chance to win the witch hammer Blu-ray. 
so I am back here with a, another one of these anniversary segments. And for this one, I'm going to be celebrating the 35th anniversary of Child's Play. Now, as this is releasing, we are just about, you know, a little under a week from the 35th anniversary to the day. So this one's very timely. And I want to go ahead and set up a lot of the background on Child's Play. I think this is a very influential film, so I will go into all the background and everything on it. And then we'll talk about the film and the film's importance. So screenwriter Don Mancini first came up with the idea for the film while in film school at UCLA. His father was a marketing exec, and Mancini took inspiration from the way they would market to children in the 80s. He had a strained relationship with his father, which is why he chose to center the story around a child with a single mother. Producer David Kirshner, who would go on to produce all seven of the Child's Play Chucky movies, claimed to be interested in a killer doll movie after reading The Dollhouse Murders, and director Tom Holland said that Chucky's design was definitely influenced by the My Buddy dolls at the time. While Mancini was putting the script together, he used the title of Batteries Not Included, but had to change it to Bloody Buddy after he learned another movie was in development with that title. In the original version of Bloody Buddy, the doll would have been filled with fake blood and would come to life after Andy mixed his blood with the doll. That version would have played more as a mystery and would have taken longer to reveal whether Andy or Chucky was the true murderer. The doll would have fed off of Andy's inner rage and would have went after his enemy specifically. Charles Band was initially interested in the script, but would ultimately pass on it. And honestly, that's probably a good thing because I'm not sure Charles Band could have put the money and backing of a studio behind this one. Eventually, United Artists and MGM would pick this film up uh, when they decided they could probably make a series of films after it, so, or out of it, sorry. So yeah, definitely some artistic motives there, but I'm sure they were seeing all the franchises at the time and were thinking, hey, why not us? Why can't we get one? John Lafia was brought in to pin a new version of the script that would eliminate the bleeding doll aspect and make Andy more sympathetic, which can argue whether that worked or not, but the execs believed no parent would buy their child a doll that bleeds, and I mean, maybe at the time, maybe not, but yeah, I, I get where they're coming from there. Lafayette instead added in the origin story of Charles Lee Ray to replace the, you know, mixing blood aspect and the angle of his soul making it into Chucky's body. The name Charles Lee Ray was conceived as a combination of Charles Manson, Lee Harvey Oswald, and James Earl Ray, who were all infamous figures. Lafayette originally included a scene set in the doll factory where Chucky was made but this was cut and reused in the sequel. Lafayette had an interest in directing the movie, but was turned down based on him not having enough directing experience. Several veteran directors were considered for the job, including William Friedkin, Irvin Kirshner, 
and Robert Wise. In fact, seven different directors were approached before they landed on Tom Holland based on a recommendation from Spielberg. And I think Holland had worked on, you know, some amazing stories episodes and Spielberg put in a good word for him. Brad Dorff was eventually chosen for the role of Chucky because he worked with Holland on Fatal Beauty and Holland thought he did a good job in that. Uh, John Lithgow was initially considered for the role, though. The voice of Chucky went through several different incarnations before the final version. At first, they were planning on a simple overlay similar to the sound chips uh, within children's toys at the time, but they ended up tossing that out after the idea didn't seem feasible. Dorf was going to record but became unavailable due to conflicts with filming spontaneous combustion. Due to this, Holland brought in Jessica Walter to voice Chucky, but her recordings were eventually thrown out in the end. More on that a little later. They next brought in John Franklin to record, but he was also replaced when Dorf became available again. However, unlike Walter, some of Franklin's audio still made it into the final cut of the film. Principal photography commenced on January 7th, 1988, and ended two months later on March 5th. Going in, the film was set to have a budget between 9 and $13 million. Now, getting back to Mancini for a little bit, because he would play a bigger role in the series later on, he didn't have much to do on this one. He did that initial script, but due to the 1988 Writers Guild strike, Mancini never stepped foot on the set and only played a small role in the production of the film. The in-studio filming was done at Culver Studios in Culver City, California. They also filmed on location in Chicago, where the wind chill drove temperatures down as low as negative 50. Due to this, they had to rent out rooms and use running cars as warming stations for the cast and crew. It took nine puppeteers to control and move the Chucky props during filming, including Brock Winkless, who used a radio-controlled rig to create Chucky's mouth movements. For the wide shots, they used children and shorter actors in a life-sized costume. Now, there were several different Chucky animatronics, including uh, ones for when he's walking, ones for when he was standing, and ones for when he was throwing a flailing tantrum, as it was put here. And it seemed like, you know, they had to create a different one for each situation. Holland and Kirshner clashed throughout the production over the tone and the screen time of the Chucky character. This came to a head after a rough two-hour cut of the film, was shown at a test screening. After negative reviews, around 25 minutes of the film was cut in order to reduce the amount of time Chucky was on screen. Kirshner felt this would build suspense, like with Jaws or Aliens. Holland objected, however, and even left the production over this change, or these changes. This was also the point where they threw out Walter's recordings, her voice was considered to be menacing enough, but she wasn't able to properly handle the more comedic elements of the role. So in addition to all the cuts that they made, they also cut Walter's voice here as they felt that was part of the reason why they got the negative reviews. 
Now, Joseph Renzetti did the score for this one and tried to blend a mixture of orchestral and electronic music, and I actually do like the score that Renzetti put together. MGM and United Artists made the call to push Child's Play from the October window to a release date of November 9th, 1988. They heavily marketed the film on TV and wanted Chucky to be the next horror icon. I think they were even targeting, you know, between 12 and 20 year olds with this one. The film opened with 6.5 million in its debut and would go into gross a total of 33 million in the US and another 10 million internationally. Now, as far as physical media, um, Child's Play was initially released on VHS on April 25th of 1989. It would receive a DVD release in 1999, so 10 years later it gets on DVD, and then a Blu-ray release, but I think, at least initially, the only Blu-ray releases of it were on um, a six-film Chucky collection in 2013, and then when they updated it to the seven-film collection, I think in like 2018. It also received a 4K release last year, as well as the other, you know, Child's Play 2 and Child's Play 3. The film received a lot of negative attention by those claiming it would cause children to commit violence. At some point during the initial release, it said that a large group of protesters showed up outside of MGM's offices. Producer David Kirshner saw the crowd on the TV in his office, and another MGM employee, Jeffrey Hilton, claimed he could disperse the crowd in 10 minutes. Kirshner saw him on TV talking to and shaking hands with the protest leader, and the crowd soon left. Now, Kirshner never was sure if Hilton used diplomacy or threats to disperse the protesters, but he was glad that he did. And I don't think this one got quite as much flack as, I think, Child's Play 3, 2 or 3. One of them was used in court cases as evidence to you know, say why people committed these murders, but as we all know, that's just kind of ridiculous in and of itself. So with Child's Play was directed by Tom Holland, as we stated, and was cut down to 87 minutes. The synopsis I have here is a single mother gives her son a beloved doll for his birthday, only to discover that it is possessed by the soul of a serial killer. So I think the Child's Play franchise is a pretty mixed one. I think some people like it. I think people like parts of it and not other parts of it. The same as any other franchise, but I would say, though, it had a big cultural impact, and especially when I was growing up. And I think I've talked about Candyman before, but when I was growing up, no one was really talking much about Halloween or Michael Myers or um, Jason Voorhees or Friday the 13th or anything like that. Uh, there was still some Freddy Krueger talk going on, but a lot of it was geared at a few films that I specifically remember kids talking about when I was younger and um, talking about before I had seen any of these films. And Child's Play was one of those, and the other ones were um, Candyman and the It miniseries. And I think those were huge with my generation. And, I mean, Chucky has become almost synonymous with, I think it's died down for sure, but I think in the 90s, Chucky was really a driving force of the horror industry, regardless of what you think was happening in the 90s or how good the films are or anything like that. 
myself, I really enjoy the Child's Play franchise and most of it. There are a couple entries that I don't like at all. And I've yet to get to the TV series, but I really do want to get to that one. Especially since I believe it continued the uh, curse and cult film line and storyline that was going on through there. But I hate him or love him, and regardless of the quality of the films, uh, Child's Play is still a well-respected movie, and I think Chucky's still a much-beloved character. Now, talking about this movie specifically... I think initially I had it higher than I came down on it this time. My biggest issue, I think, is that it's kind of a little, I don't know. And maybe, you know, I've watched this several times now, and there are such a thing as diminishing returns, as well as the issue with, you know, sometimes I watch a movie and I'm higher on it. Sometimes I rewatch a movie and I'm, I'm lower on it. It depends on the mood and the time. But overall, I really enjoy this film. I think it has a pretty good cast, including Katherine Hicks and Chris Sarandon. Now, Alex Vincent as Andy, I can... um not a huge fan of him in this film. But, you know, he does a good enough job. He's not, he's not terrible. That's, that's one of the weakest links, I think, in this film. But I think Dorif does a pretty good job as Chucky. And honestly, it it is weird. You you can kind of tell it's a little weird pushing in the, you know, the hoodoo or the Santeria magic that goes along with this. We had the opening scene where Dorif is being chased and he's killed and he transfers his soul into a doll using some kind of voodoo or black magic. And... I mean that's that's okay but I think that's where that's where my biggest flaw with this film is is it's just I don't know about that angle. Now I love the idea though of a doll or a toy coming to life being murderous pretending like it's not and there are some really good scenes in here and I'm I'm going to let you know right now I'm probably going to get into a little bit of brief spoilers for Child's Play if you've never seen it. I'll give you a little bit of time to turn it off if you haven't seen the film, and I'll talk about something else for a minute. But I am going to get into some scenes here a little later on that kind of really work for me. So whereas the voodoo and all that stuff is kind of it's kind of weird and it's kind of shoehorned in. You know, we have a scene later on where Chucky confronts his, uh, you know, the guy who taught him all of this stuff. And I don't think that's great. I do like the idea of him trying to transfer himself into Andy, though. I do like that. Now, where it gets a little creepy, and I always thought this was weird, is Chucky kind of comes off as this um, pedo creep, for lack of a better term. I mean, in this movie, he says things, and it's all about the one-liner. I think um, someone had mentioned that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy specifically, maybe it was Tom Holland, but mentioned that they had influenced their decisions on this. And we talked about the whole humor aspect of everything. And there's a line in here uh, where Chucky says, I've got a date with a six-year-old boy and says it very proudly and very prominently. And uh, that's, that's kind of weird. And, you know, in, in the sequel, there's another line about playing hide the soul, which is (laughs) kind of creepy and, um, off-putting as well, but yeah, 
Chucky, Chucky's a little bit creepy, but and not necessarily always in a good way. Uh, there are some pretty good scenes. I mean, I like, and I had completely forgot about the mom's best friend. And again, I love Catherine Hicks in this. I think she's great. You know, you can tell she's struggling and she's just trying to make things happen for her son and do the best she can for him. But maybe it's not the best uh, best idea to go buying a doll off of a, uh, you know, a homeless man with a shopping cart behind your department store. But anyway, lesson learned. Uh, what I want to say is she has a friend. And, you know, that friend agrees to watch Andy and the way she goes out. I completely forgot about that aspect of the film until I had rewatched it this time. I think it's pretty decent. You know, you start to see a slow build with Chucky and whether, you know, he's wanting to watch TV and uh, wants to watch the news. And Andy says this and, you know, she's not going for it. And then, you know, Chucky's in front of the TV with the TV on. And did Andy do that or did Chucky do that? And I like that. And I wish it would have had just a little bit more of that build and a little bit more of those kind of moments um, instead, we get a pretty brash scene where she is kind of thrown out of the window. And again, we don't know. I think this is where we sow the seeds of, is it Andy or is this doll coming to life? And I don't know how they marketed this, but I think that would have been a smart angle to take. I certainly think it's a pretty good angle up to that point. But uh, another great scene in this that I like is, or great moments, are when the mother character of Karen, you know, she opens the box and the batteries fall out. So this whole time she's seen Chucky talking. She's trying to believe her son who is, you know, being taken to a mental institution. It's very much presumed that he has mur been murdering people, but she finds the battery. She knows he's been talking the whole time and this is when she kind of interrogates him and he breaks character and he's no longer the good guy doll. He's just going after her. But I love that moment. Um, the ending is the ending is whatever. I think there was initially a longer ending that was cut an alternate ending. I know at the end, Chucky's arm would have like swatted a fly or something like that in a police evidence locker. And there was much more, I think, like Andy would have had a squirt gun with like Drano or some kind of chemical of some sort and would be shooting Chucky with it. There was an extended scene. I think the Chucky thing at the end goes on for too long. There are some good moments in there for sure in that final confrontation. And I like that everyone by the end of this that is close enough in close proximity with this believes it but you know that no one else is going to believe them about all this stuff. But at the end of the day, I do really like Child's Play. I think it kicked off a pretty good series. Here's the thing with the Child's Play films, is I like almost all of them, but I'm not that high on a lot of them. You know, most of my scores range between uh, 6 and like 8, 8.5. So while I think the series as a whole is solid, at least in my opinion, I know a lot of people don't like uh, two and three or people don't like other ones in the series, but I really think they're all at least, you know, well done with the exception of two films that I don't like. And I'm not going to get into it. I might do a, 
a franchise review of this someday. I'm not going to get into my likes and dislikes on all of these, but there are a couple that I just have never liked. So if I was to rate Child's Play, I think now after this time watching it, it's still really good. The performances are mostly really good. I like the early on mystery. I like the whole scenario of the doll that's or the toy that's been invading your home, your kid's home. You've given them this thing that could hurt everyone in the house and you didn't know it. And I, again, I have a little bit of problems with the black magic kind of stuff. I would come in at like an 8.5. I think I say if you haven't seen this, it's absolutely worth a watch and you should get to that. I say it's a high priority rental. If you haven't seen it, honestly, if you're into this type of thing, it's probably an easy buy. I would recommend that Chucky collection if they're still selling it. It's a pretty good deal. You know, I toyed around with buying the 4K of like the first three Child's Play films, but I, I've i got the Blu-rays. I, I think I'm fine with that, you know. But I think Chucky has lasted and become really one of the icons of horror. And it, it does get more comedic as you go along. And then it kind of course corrects as you get to curse and cult. A little bit, I would say. But I think Chucky is one of the... He's a pretty good horror icon as far as that goes. Still going on today with the the show that's going on. They're at season three right now. I do want to get caught up with that and watch that because I've heard it's good. So I'll get to that at some point. But uh, yeah, Child's Play. I don't think there's any question that this has had a decent impact on the industry. Just in terms of mindshare, I think. I don't think it's necessarily done much new. I mean, there's been doll killer doll films and things like that before. There have been killer doll films since. Are some of those based off of Child's Play? Maybe. I would say it's probably the biggest until we got Annabelle. But yeah, that's about all I have to say. So happy anniversary, Child's Play. And I'm going to be doing, I'm going to hope to get a couple more of these in in December. I do have uh, one film I need to do for sure and one other one that I want to talk about. So we'll see if I can fit those in for the end of the year. And then I can kind of start fresh in 2024 and I don't have to rush into these I can kind of spread them out more but there were a number of films that were celebrating their anniversaries this year that I did want to touch on okay well that's going to do it for this episode of Screaming Through the Ages next time out it will be a Screaming Chronicles episode I will be talking about you know another season of anime I will be going on a little bit of sci-fi alien kick and talking about some 90s alien films and not the franchise Alien, but uh, just films with aliens in them. I will also be continuing my Alex de la Iglesia filmography, and hopefully have some more surprises in there in that episode for you, but we'll see what I can fit in. I'm running a little bit behind on this episode due to uh, COVID, but hey, I'm getting back on the horse, and we're going to get this thing moving along. So I appreciate everyone listening in. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Screaming Ages. You can join the Facebook group. You can send me an email at ScreamingThroughTheAges at Yahoo.com. 
And I'd appreciate it if you subscribed and leave a rating on the podcast service of your choice. Um, But until next time, keep your eye on your favorite podcast feed for your next bi-weekly dose of Screaming Through the Ages. (laughs) 